You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Proverbs 8. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossword she takes her stand. Beside the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud, to you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom, I have insight, I have strength. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work and the first first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me, Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. And he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me hate love death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand your word. We pray even more than that, 
Father, that you would transform us by your word. Oh, Lord Jesus, oh, word, incarnate word, we pray that you would inhabit us by your spirit, that you would cause us to be wise as we become more and more conformed to your image. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, it's really good that I usually pray before coming up here, because I like wanted to run up here like a motivational speaker or something, like, who's excited to be here tonight or something, because I am excited to be here tonight. Uh, hi, my name is Nathan. Uh, if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. For those who I haven't seen in four weeks, it's good to see you again. Uh, it is really, really good to be back in this place where there is bright blue skies, and there is green chili, and there is Chick-fil-A. Here's the thing, though. Does it make me a bad New Mexican that I actually was more excited to get back to Chick-fil-A sauce than green chili? Like, I wanted, like, an IV of Chick-fil-A sauce, like, just inserted into my veins this week. But uh, I was in England for two and a half weeks uh, meeting with various pastors and professors and researching 17th century Baptist life in London. Uh, it was an incredibly fruitful trip. Uh, really, really great uh, in understanding a particular church in a particular context when it was not popular or even legal to be a Baptist. Uh, I've already learned so much already about the past that is so useful for understanding the present and the future. So keep praying for me as I continue on in that work. And then, as many of you know, uh, Allison and Gail and Tristan and Luke and I went to uh, Central Asia to spend a week with the M's. Uh, members will share some more specific recaps and thoughts and reflections soon, but I think I can speak for the other four of us in saying that that was one of the more meaningful weeks of my life. It was really great, not only getting to spend a week right up close and personal with the M's, uh, getting to know them better, uh, understanding and then even loving their context more clearly and being more thankful for their friendship and partnership, uh, but then just being able to come back and be able to communicate to you all uh, about their work, pray more specifically, and then, Lord willing, uh, help mobilize many more of you to join them in their work. May it be so. Uh, all that to say, Christ Church, thank you for letting me be away for so long, too long. Uh, thank you, Clint and Jordan and Aaron and Kyle, wherever you are, for uh, handling God's Word so well. Uh, I was I so benefited over the past four Sundays listening to the podcast. It wasn't the same as being here, uh, but growing under God's Word. And it's really true that Absence does make the heart grow fonder. I've missed you. And these four weeks have reaffirmed how much I love you and how so thankful I am to be a member of this church along with you. Um, but the saints in London and in Leicester and in Central Asia send along their greetings and their affection and their thankfulness to you all as well. So glad to be back. Okay, Proverbs. We are going to wrap up our introduction to this book uh, tonight, and then next week we're going to begin a topical walk through the pithy one-liners. Uh, next week we'll think through decision-making and the will of God through the many Proverbs, uh, starting in chapter 10 throughout the rest of the book, that are considering that theme. But by way of recap, we've considered the need to get wisdom, that we ought to pursue wisdom as a bride, we ought to pursue her at all costs because she is worthy and she is beautiful. We ought to pursue wisdom as a path, 
that of a, a series of small and repeated steps. We ought to pursue wisdom that flows from the heart, that isn't just moralism. That is, unless we find Jesus and wisdom as a place of joy and satisfaction, being convinced that he is more satisfying than all of the other uh, cups of sand that, out there, that are out there that we try to quench our thirst with, then we will just pursue wisdom as we become good little moralists, as we try harder, as we make better decisions. But ultimately, this kind of wisdom will only lead to failure and disappointment. In the first nine chapters, this Solomon figure is pleading with his son to pursue wisdom. He's given some practical advice, but before he gets to his proverbial wisdom, the the pithy one-liners, he gives one final plea to his son to listen carefully, to actually want this, to want wisdom for himself. So we're going to think through chapters eight and nine tonight in two halves, which are essentially just separated by each chapter, that of the power of wisdom in chapter eight and the urgency of of wisdom in chapter 9. Now, one more thing before we get going. Chapter 8 is one of the most theologically dense chapters in the whole Bible, that which you just heard Lauren read, especially uh, the verses that she was reading from verses 22 through 31. Uh, if I were to preach Proverbs 8 as a standalone sermon, we would really, really slow down and unpack it verse by verse and just all of its implications. But we have already thought through so many of the themes of chapter 8 uh, in these earlier chapters, that of the competing voice, the voices of Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. So we're going to move a bit more quickly through chapter 8 than if this were a standalone. But let's get through chapter 8 here. First, the power of wisdom. This, chapter 8, is in immediate contrast to everything that Aaron preached so faithfully Uh, last week about the adulterous woman in chapters 5 through 7. The Solomon figure here uh, turns the spotlight. The spotlight has been on Lady Folly, the adulterous woman in chapters 5 through 7. And now the spotlight turns to her godly counterpart, Lady Wisdom. And in contrast to the speech of Lady Folly, Solomon focuses here again on Lady Wisdom's speech. Like, the actual speech, the the words coming out of her mouth. Just listen to all of the speech words in the first eight verses of chapter eight again. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. She says this, she says, to you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. Oh, fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. Compared to the slinking woman in chapters 5 through 7, who is also loud, but who is somewhat in the shadows, asking Did God really say? Here, Lady Wisdom stands wide open at the city gates, loudly proclaiming, yes, he did. Proclaiming the wisdom of God. God's voice and his word are clear and are to be understood by anyone who wants to hear, who would just but listen. 
We'll get more to her content in chapter 9, which again is very similar to much of the things that we've already heard her say. But let me just say this in regards to her contrasting voice to Lady Folly. I think we can sometimes think that the Christian life is just learning to say no. Just hearing the bad stuff out there and learning to say no from that, turning from that. Just learn to say no to drugs and alcohol. Learn to say no to bad words and bad movies. Learn to say no to bad desires and bad actions. In fact, just learn to say no to joy and to life. And some of that, not the joy and life part, but some of that actually can be true. Aaron said last week that, rightly, that we give into some areas of temptation just because we lack discipline. And that's true. But to paraphrase something I've heard somewhere else, I don't remember where, for every no that Jesus gives, he gives a thousand yeses elsewhere. He doesn't just tell us to say no that we might not have joy. He redirects us to a yes, to a greater yes filled with joy. The God of the Bible is not telling you in Proverbs to turn away from foolishness, to turn away from folly, so that you might actually, in the same turning, turn away from joy and life. No, it's actually the opposite. Turning away from foolishness and turning to wisdom is to turn to joy and to turn to life, to the fullest life imaginable, to the life that you were created for. So turning away from Lady Folly is to actually turn to wisdom. Because here is the power of wisdom, is that wisdom is embedded in the way that the entire universe is actually ordered to begin with. Verse 15, Lady Wisdom says, By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. One person says that this verse is Lady Wisdom pulling out her resume. Uh, she's like pulling out, she's redirecting you to the website, or the, the, the webpage on the ad agencies webpage that says, here's who we work with. This is her resume. All of these people. Lady Wisdom says that anytime a king or a ruler does what is just or is right, they are even, perhaps unbeknownst to them, operating under God's common grace of wisdom, of operating under her guidance. And how is that possible? Even if they don't know God? Well, because wisdom is the creative power of God that is embedded in the very fabric of the universe. Verses 22 through 31 explain that wisdom personified, this lady wisdom character, was before the creation of the universe. She was there. Wisdom was there before the creation of the universe. And in fact, wisdom was the creative force in the creation of the universe. Now, heads up, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons will go straight to Proverbs 8 to justify their belief that Jesus, being the wisdom of God, is actually not God, but is the first creation of God. God created this wisdom character, as we see in Proverbs 8, and then that wisdom character created the universe. Do you see how that jump can be made? That God existed Wisdom is something that is apart from God, so wisdom, or Jesus, being not God, but a created being created by God, is then used by God. But, show me, in Proverbs 8, 
that God actually creates wisdom. As if there were ever a time that God was not wise. God does not create holiness. God does not create righteousness. God does not create love. God does not create wisdom. He is those things. They're not adjectives of of him, but they are characteristics of him. The personified wisdom of God here in Proverbs 8 is both distinct from God, but also is God. The wisdom of God emanates from God. So in the same way that we see elsewhere in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord being distinct from God, the word of the Lord goes out from God, but then the word, of the, law, the word of the Lord is also divine itself. It emanates from God in the same way that the spirit of the Lord is distinct from God, but is God. The angel of the Lord is distinct from God, but is God. So wisdom here is as well. And so Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are actually right to see Jesus here in Proverbs 8. But I am confident that Paul had Proverbs 8 in mind as he wrote about Jesus being the wisdom of God in Colossians 2, being the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1, just as John had similar categories of Jesus being the word of God throughout John's gospel and in 1 John. And Proverbs 8 was certainly considered in the Nicene Creed that we professed earlier tonight, the early church beginning to fully understand these Trinitarian categories of the Godhead of Jesus as the second person of the triune God, God the Son, the wisdom of God made known to us. The only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Man, that is Proverbs 8 language. And so turning away from folly and then turning to wisdom is actually to turn to Christ. The creative and animating power behind the entire universe. Very God of very God. Jesus Christ is like the skeleton key to unlocking and understanding your existence as a human being. Jesus is what teachers and what philosophers and what Shamans and religious leaders have been searching for for millennia. He is, hear me now, the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified carpenter, dead, buried, and resurrected. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. His kingdom and your place in it is why you exist. Pursuing life outside of your created purpose, pursuing life outside of his wisdom, the wisdom of God, is futile, is folly. Or as Augustine said 1,600 some odd years ago, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You were created for God, for his wisdom to walk with him, and you will forever be restless until you find your rest in him. I hope, just like observational reflection, some empirical evidence in your life might actually suggest that. And if not, I pray by God's spirit that he would actually reveal these cups of sand that you are pursuing apart from him and that they are actually not satisfying. 
And so to turn to wisdom is to turn to Christ. To turn to Christ is to turn to the highest power in the universe, is to turn to joy, is to turn to love. And how's that? Well, let's turn over to chapter 9. And now even consider the urgency of wisdom. Before wrapping up this intro and then moving into his proverbial wisdom, chapter 9 almost acts as if Solomon, if he takes one of his boys, well, we'll call one of his sons Jeroboam. Solomon has now taken Jeroboam to a play. And on stage at this play, in chapter 9, there's the main character. And the main character on stage is a young man. The young man on stage in this play is about Jeroboam's age, so that Jeroboam might identify with him. And on stage, this young man is walking about the city, walking through the, st- the streets of the city. I don't know if you've ever seen like Les Miserables or something on stage. Maybe there's like this rotating uh, thing that's going on. You see this character walking through these streets and they've made the set look just like Jerusalem so that Jeroboam might understand this city that the, the character is walking through. And as this character is about to round a corner, the special effects department really kicks it up into high gear because everyone in the theater can smell, can smell these beautiful, rich, Uh, succulent things that they're just starting to pipe in through the theater. You smell the meats and you smell the cheeses, the chocolate desserts. It's like you and Jeroboam are sitting in this theater and you go into this like Remy the Rat thing in Ratatouille. You just, it's like explosions of smells and tastes in your imagination. And then you Perhaps before even the character on stage, you and Jeroboam can actually then see where the smells are coming from. These smells are coming from a beautiful, huge house. And whose house is this? What kind of party is this food being prepared for? Well, as the young man is walking through the streets on the stage, and you in the theater and the audience can smell the smells, a narrator walks out and the narrator says this. In verse 1, the narrator says, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So here's this amazing matronly woman who is coming out and calling, and her name is Wisdom. We see that she has built this beautiful house by herself. She has built this house of of perfection, seven pillars. She is preparing this feast of succulent steaks and spiced wine. And who is she preparing this feast for? For the simple. For anyone who would listen, who would learn, who is humble enough to know that there is things still to learn, who is teachable. For him, this character on stage, and for him, for Jeroboam, sitting in the theater. Come and eat of my bread and drink of my wine, she says. Come in and be satisfied. Leave your simple ways and live. Stop eating ramen noodles and maybe like microwavable corn dogs and frozen pizzas. Those are all fine, but I have prepared a meal for you, and it's free. It's the best meal that you could imagine. Turn away from the corn dogs and 
sit down and eat this beef bourguignon. Speaking of beef bourguignon, you know who's the picture that I have of in Proverbs 9 for this Lady Wisdom character? Julia Child. This is who I have of Lady Wisdom. Uh, I didn't know anything about Julia Child uh, before the movie Julia and Julia that I watched like 10 or 12 years ago or whenever it was that it came out. Uh, Here's the thing. After World War II, Julia's husband, Paul, uh, who was in the Foreign Service, was transferred to the French city of Rouen. And her first meal there, this woman, Julia Child, her first meal, first French meal in Rouen was that of oysters and sole maunier. I don't even know what that is. But it was apparently amazing, with some French wine. And she later said of this first meal, she said that the meal was an opening up of the soul and of spirit for me. Then this lady, this woman, who had no culinary background, she forced her way into a prestigious French cooking school and then became internationally renowned for her TV cooking show and her book, which was called Mastering the Art of French Cooking. She said this. She says, anyone can cook in the French manner anywhere with the right instruction. Anyone, anywhere. She's saying that anyone from anywhere can learn to cook amazing food. It does not matter if you are from New York or New Mexico, from Paris or Placitas. Anyone can learn. You can leave your pizza rolls and your corn dogs behind in exchange for beef bourguignon and sole monier. I don't know what those are. They're undoubtedly amazing. So here is Lady Wisdom. I suppose that it would be hers, Lady Wisdom, and Julia Child's right to figure out all of this stuff about the world and then keep it to themselves. Julia Child could have gone to Le Cordon Bleu, become a great cook in a restaurant, merely served her clients, perhaps made amazing meals for herself and for her husband at home, and kept it all to herself. But she wanted to teach. She wanted to inspire. She wanted to satisfy everyday people out there. And so Lady Wisdom approaches our main character, the Julia Child character on stage. She walks out to this young man walking on the stage through the streets of Jerusalem, and she invites him in. In fact, she even tells him the party is for him. She has prepared all of this amazing meal for him if he would just come inside and eat it. And then it's a pretty short first act, but then the curtain comes down. It's intermission. Solomon takes his son out to the lobby and he buys him a snack and a drink. And he says this, he says in verse 7, as they're standing out in the lobby in intermission, he says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man though, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Jeroboam, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Why does he say this? Why does he say this at intermission? He's saying, Jeroboam, Jabo, pretty sure that's what he called him. It's the Hebrew. Jabo, you, son, are the young man on the stage. In fact, I orchestrated this whole thing. I'm the director. I'm actually the producer of this whole thing. I've got some sway and pull in this city. 
I even found an actor that looked just like you. You're the young man on the stage. Will you go and learn from Lady Wisdom? Will you go into her house and eat and be satisfied? Will you scoff at her amazing and generous free offer or will you take it? Will you fear the Lord and recognize that you, young man, are not the beginning and the end of all wisdom, but that God is? Finally, he says in verse 12, if you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. What's he saying? Jeroboam, Jabo, you got to decide for yourself right now. While you can go to the temple that I just made and completed, it's pretty awesome. It's really great. You can go there. But you must still individually and personally love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind. You, son, not me. You can't borrow wisdom. You can't borrow fear of the Lord from me. You can't borrow wisdom or fear of the Lord from a priest or a pastor. Get wisdom. You get wisdom. Even if your friends aren't. Even if your entire country and your culture are rejecting it. Son, get wisdom. Pursue the Lord. Love the Lord. Fear the Lord. Put yourself under his instruction. You are responsible. You are accountable. Go in the house and eat the satisfying meal. And as he's saying this, the lights then flash in the lobby and there's a few soft dings. So they go back into the theater and they sit down and the lights then go back down and the curtain comes up for act two. And again, we see our young man character walking on the little turntable stage And maybe just before going into the banquet feast, he's heard the call of the woman, Lady Wisdom. But as the stage rotates, then he hears another voice. And I think in the the past, I used to think of this second voice as kind of like the old witch hag from The Princess Bride. Boo! Bow to her! The queen of muck! The queen of filth! But I don't think that's her. That's not Lady Folly here. I think Lady Folly is more like Ursula at the end of The Little Mermaid. Beautiful, attractive, seductive. She comes out on the stage and the narrator says, this woman, Folly, she's loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. What does she say? She says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol, the place of the dead. Instead of being this hardworking, welcoming woman full of wisdom and knowledge, Lady Folly is loud, seductive, and what does the narrator say about her? She actually knows nothing. She does not understand the deep things of the universe. She sits out her house 
yelling at those who are attempting to walk the straight path and who weren't necessarily looking for her. But she cries out to them. She says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here, which is exactly the same words that Lady Wisdom called out. In verse 4, maybe, maybe Lady Folly is like mimicking, parroting, mocking Lady Wisdom by saying the exact same things just with a sarcastic tone. But more likely, she's actually trying to sound exactly like her. So that it becomes very difficult to make out the difference between wisdom and foolishness. Their call sounds the exact same. And so foolishness comes in and says, come, find joy. Come find life. Come find meaning and satisfaction with me. She's offering you that too, but this is where it's really at. Just like Aaron helped us think through last week, the wisdom of the world comes calling by entertainment, by economics, by philosophy, by politics, that all mimic the wisdom of God, that mimic the beckoning and calling of God, all of which can be helpful. None of those things are in and of themselves bad, but they are not comprehensively satisfying. They are not in and of themselves, embedded into the creation of the universe. They will not provide for you the way of living and of life that God has given in his wisdom. So she says, stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Now, first of all, what is she offering? Water and bread. Not steak and wine, but water and bread. The main character on stage may not be able to see it, but like we in the audience, we can laugh at her invitation. This isn't just turning from microwavable corn dogs to steak and wine. This is turning from microwavable corn dogs to even moldy bread and lukewarm water. It doesn't make any sense. And she actually doesn't even have anything to offer because she actually had to steal it in the first place to offer it. And I've already mentioned Augustine earlier that our hearts are restless until they find our rest in God. But he famously, this dude, growing up in Egypt in like the 300s, he tells a story when he was a young boy. And he says this. Maybe you've heard of this story in his book, The Confessions. But he says, there was a pear tree close to our own vineyard. So he's growing up, he's a young lad, maybe 13 years old or something. There's a pear tree close to our own vineyard, heavily laden with fruit, which was not tempting either for its color or for its flavor. But late one night, having prolonged our games in the streets until then, as our bad habit was, a group of young scoundrels, and I among them, went to shake and to rob this tree, this pear tree. We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs. After barely tasting some of them ourselves, doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O God. Such was my heart, having no temptation to evil, but the evil itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved my own undoing. Aren't we like that? Does Augustine's own autobiography, his own story, resonate in some way? Isn't one reason that the allure of sin is so enticing is just because it's against the rules? That we get to become the judge and arbiter of what is right and wrong, that rules do not apply to us, 
No one gets to tell me what to do. I will be the one to decide what makes me happy. I will be the one to decide what is good for me, what is good for life and for society. I will be the one to make the rules. And when someone imposes another rule on me, I will break it. And then when I will break it, it's sweet. Lady Folly knows this about the human heart, and so she dangles another hook out that she knows is going to hook this young man. She's seductive. She calls to those who are unassuming and unprepared. She calls using the same call as Lady Wisdom. She offers bread to those who are hungry. She offers evil because we, she knows that we like that. She knows what she is doing. Folly, even internal folly, our own sinful inclinations, knows what it is doing. But then we get to see why she's doing it. Why Lady Folly is here in the first place. She's not here out of the generosity of her own heart to satisfy some young passing man with a a loaf of bread. Why did Lady Wisdom invite our protagonist in in the first place? Not so she could impart wisdom or give life full, flavorful, satisfying life. Why does she invite him in? To kill him. We can see behind the set, maybe the, the, the set has turned a bit, so the front door of the house is here and Lady Folly is talking to our main character so that we in the audience can see behind, so we can see in her house, but he can't see. And what we see behind her door is a pile of corpses, rotting and decomposing skeletons. And the boy on stage, he takes a step towards the house, towards the woman. He hesitates, he thinks, and then the curtain falls. Perhaps similar to the ending of the parable of the prodigal son, where we don't actually see the end of that story, do we? We are meant to wonder, did the older brother actually go into the party that the father had thrown for his now-returned younger son? We are to put ourselves into the role of the older brother in in that parable. Here also, we are to assume the role. We are to become the character of this young man on the stage. And so, Solomon his son, they walk out of the theater and they're walking back to the palace and Solomon puts his arm around his son and he says, what'd you think, Jabo? He's like, uh, I don't know. Do you think that the boy on stage went into Lady Folly's house? I don't know. You want to know what I think? I don't know. I think the young man on stage went into her house. You want to know why I think that? Why? Because the only reason that he's still on the street in the first place is because he didn't go into Lady Wisdom's house. He heard her call, and he stayed out on the street. Once wisdom has made you an offer to leave your simple-mindedness, you are no longer simple and naive. Now you are culpable. You are accountable. Now you're willfully scoffing at wisdom. You cannot stay indifferent to wisdom. You got to choose, J-Bo. You got to hear and respond. 
And when that young man on the stage did not choose wisdom, he chose death. It was inevitable that he was going to walk into Folly's house. And now, what's become of him? He's a rotting corpse. So listen, son. Tomorrow, we go to school. We go to wisdom school. And I'm going to teach you everything that I've ever learned about this world. I'm going to teach you about decision-making, and I'm going to teach you about working hard, and I'm going to teach you about what it means to use your mouth to encourage and to give life to others, and I'm going to teach you what it's going to mean to be a son and what it's going to mean to one day be a parent and to one day be a husband, and I'm going to teach you everything that I've learned about this life. And if you listen to this teaching, you will find life. You will live a long and satisfied life, but you've got to listen. You've got to become teachable. You must be willing to admit simpleness and to leave folly. And if you don't, you're going to die unfulfilled, unsatisfied, and outside of the will of God. There is an urgency here for Jeroboam. There is an urgency here for all of us to hear the wisdom of God made known to us in Christ Jesus and respond to him. But with Solomon, there's a really, really sad epilogue. Like disastrously sad. What happened? If you want to just flip over a little bit to your left in 1 Kings or not, let me just read from you in 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 8. Here's what we have, the narrative of the end of Solomon's life. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite women, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after the gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. He was the wisest man in the history of the earth but his heart is still so thirsty. So thirsty and still looking for satisfaction in other cups of sand. He gives so much advice, so much wisdom to his sons, even about other women. And yet his wisdom doesn't even settle in his own heart. And then we see what happens to his boys after he dies. Jabo. Jeroboam, he tries to overthrow Solomon, and then Solomon just dies with a whimper. Another son, Rehoboam, demonstrates one of the most foolish decisions that a king ever makes in the Old Testament. We read about that in 1 Kings 12, in which the ESV subtitles, just the subtitle in your Bible, if you have an ESV, just says, Rehoboam's folly compared to wisdom. 
The kingdom gets divided. Both sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, institute new and heinous idolatry so that in the rest of First and Second Kings, we read of the future kings that they walked in the way of Jeroboam or they did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam. So is all of this hopeless? Are we about to go for these next few weeks of just thinking through wisdom, all of the wisdom that Solomon has given to his sons, and then just think, well, it didn't turn out very well for them. Is there any hope for us? Well, remember that all of this is about the heart. Wisdom cannot be about making better decisions. Our heart and our desires must first change. We have to be convinced that Lady Wisdom is not just the better decision, but is our way of life. How? Well, Jesus says this in Matthew 7. He says, Whoever listens to me will dwell in a secure house on the rock and will be, e- will be at ease without dread or disaster. Jesus puts an urgent choice before his hearers. Just as there is no middle ground with wisdom, you will either pursue her or deny her. You will choose life or death. So it is with Jesus. He is inviting everyone into his banquet to build their house on him, to come in and be satisfied. And if you do not come in off of the street, you will find death. And in Matthew 12, Jesus says this, My paraphrase, hey everyone, remember the queen of Sheba that came to hear the the amazing wisdom of Solomon? Well, something greater than Solomon is here. I am wiser than Solomon, which is a really audacious thing for a homeless carpenter to say. But not only that, he's not only saying that he's wiser than Solomon, but then as the rest of the New Testament makes clear, he is Lady Wisdom. He is wisdom itself, the creative and animating power and force behind the entire universe. So he's saying you don't need another king to rule outside of you. You need a new and divine king to rule inside of you. The creative power of the universe to internally transform you. And so as you would hear Lady Wisdom's voice, so Jesus says that he is the good shepherd and his sheep hear his voice and will follow. To all who would, in humility, follow him, his word is clear, is understandable to any of you who would just listen. And as Lady Wisdom says, come, eat of my bread and drink of my wine, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Be satisfied in me. Listen and live. Follow and live. Eat and live. Because the banquet is free to us. It's an amazing banquet feast that is free, but it was not free to him. It cost him everything so that you might be welcomed in, that you might be transformed by by the very wisdom of God. His death for yours, his life now yours. And when we receive this new life by grace through faith, God removes this heart of stone, the same heart of stone that Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam all had, and that God by his spirit will replace that dead and cold and stony heart with a heart of flesh that is beating and alive to him. 
a heart that is able to receive and learn wisdom, to be able to discern the voice of Lady Folly, even though it's the same voice, and to turn from it and to turn to wisdom. But you must believe and be satisfied personally. You cannot borrow this belief from your pastors. You cannot borrow this belief from your GC leaders. You cannot borrow this belief or this wisdom from your parents or your siblings or your teachers or your professors. You must choose and get wisdom for yourself. You. So we will pursue this wisdom and seek to put ourselves at wisdom's feet over the next many weeks together. But we must do so in humility and do so in faith. Can we, do, can we do something here? I, I don't think we've ever done this at the end of a sermon. We've already confessed sin together as a church and been assured of our pardon together in Jesus, but can we just take a minute before we come to the table and just silently sit in confession to the Lord Jesus of how he has come to us with a succulent, satisfying feast of steak and wine and how we have turned from him so many times, even today. Just taking a moment to be honest with our triune God, of where we have sought wisdom, satisfaction, meaning, and identity outside of him, outside of the garden, outside of his life. Let's just take a, a, a couple of minutes and just be just so honest with the Lord. And then let's come in confident assurance as Clint will bring us to the table. Let's just take a minute. Our triune God, immortal, invisible, you alone who are wise, Father, we confess that we have scoffed at your meal of eternal satisfaction, that we have turned so regularly in our lives from the free gift, the free meal of your Son, and yet now confronted by your wisdom. Father, help us. Help us to not only turn from sin, but to turn to Christ, to, yes, look to our sin and how we have wronged you, but Father, be satisfied in the finished work of Jesus. We pray now that as we now embark on this path, this journey of pursuing wisdom, that you would fill us, that you would satisfy us, that we would drink deeply from the living waters that is the Lord Jesus, the very meaning of our existence. Help us to find our place in his kingdom and to walk humbly and joyfully under him as our king. Help us, we pray, by your spirit, animate our hearts, cause us to want you. Help us to want to want you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.